you know how we're not supposed to put pressure on ourselves to be productive and stuff like that? How it's not good self-care? I kind of hate that phrase. Well, welcome to the first episode in seven days of Soul Food, the ghost light season. skies look great to me and trouble begins to prove whenever the winter winds become too strong I concentrate on you when fortune cries declare you're through Whenever the blues become my only song I concentrate on you On your smile so sweet so tender When at first my kiss you On the light in your eyes when you surrender And once again our arms intertwine And so when wise men say to me That love's young dream never comes true To prove that even men can be wrong I concentrate on you
Radico, off her record Pieces of Dreams, that was I Concentrate on You. You know, I had a couple weeks there that stretched me pretty thin, so I started gearing down a bit last week, and uh, Saturday morning when I woke up, I had the best idea I've ever had. I woke up peaceful and rested. And I thought of opening my computer and, well, immediately a little tightening of the breath. Check my Facebook, a little anxiety in the pit of my stomach. And I just took the day completely away from technology. No computers, no internet, no cell phone, no nothing. And unlike Gilligan's Island, it was pure luxury. I just lived in the real world, read a book, imagined a project, chopped blackberry vines, set up this backyard campfire thing I abandoned years ago, played board games, pretended I was living in 1985, if 1985 had like DVDs and CDs of music and movies from the future. So, you know, that 1985. But no streaming, no surfing, no virtual anything, just living in the material world. It was heavenly, deeply, deeply restorative. I'm getting myself a new bracelet, WWL and MRD. What would Lauren and Mary Ruth do? Ferris Bueller, the dude, Pumbaa, or his Shakespearean alter ego, Falstaff, my role models from now on, my patron saints. So if you don't get your next podcast until, I don't know, September, don't say I didn't warn you. Can't wait for Sunday. Here's Zach Pick with his song, Maybelline. Yeah. 
of phone calls by Sarah Larson for The New Yorker. Perhaps you've experienced something like this cycle of emotions recently. This morning, as I woke up after a few days of isolation, dread, and an incipient sore throat, all of which resulted in an unpleasant stupor of dateline, napping, wall staring, and phone scrabble, I put my feet on the floor and I said to myself, today is going to be different. I marched determinedly about my apartment, tidying, making coffee, preparing to work, listening to podcasts. I felt somewhat optimistic. But soon I had tears in my eyes, because I was listening to the news. But my goal, in addition to staying informed, was to be productive, and that would require avoiding my stupor. So I took my own advice from the piece I was trying to write. I called a loved one on the phone. I picked up my landline, yes, landline, and called Janet, my late mother's best friend, a retired music teacher who lives up on Cape Cod. Janet had emailed to see how I was doing during social isolation, decorating her message with shamrocks and kissy-faced emojis. It was a great email, but I wanted to hear her voice. Sarah, Janet said. She was smiling. I could hear it. Let me put down my chanter. She was practicing her bagpipes. It was St. Patrick's Day in the time of the coronavirus, and she was preparing for a one-woman parade. I'm going to play the minstrel boy and march down the street, she said. I'll send you a video. Talking to Janet, I could hear the amusement and energy in her voice. She's always ready to laugh, even now. And she's always up to something. She talks in vivid anecdotes. We caught up, gossiped, railed against political incompetence, laughed our heads off. Hanging up, I felt more alive. I've wanted to write for a long time about the particular joy of talking on the phone. Not video chat, though that has its charms, but for sheer connectedness. The phone has something other forms of communication don't. For the past few years, I've harbored a secret theory that our love of the intimacy of podcasts, of the near-startling pleasure of curling up with the immediacy of a human voice in our ears, is connected to our loss of that pleasure from talking on the phone. In any case, I get it. 
messaging has overtaken phone calls for good reason. Convenience, desirable asynchronicity, privacy, certain respecting of boundaries. When you're using your phone primarily as a screen, flipping between, say, Twitter, Scrabble, Overcast, Instagram, the weather, your camera, a document, Google Keep, and the neurotic bunch of timers you keep for yourself to try to impose a structure on your day, or maybe that's just me, having your phone suddenly come alive, vibrating, making noise, being overtaken by the name and image of some Gabby relative, in short, turning into a phone, can be jarring. Oh, what are you doing here? Suddenly this person's in your house. But we all know instinctively about the power of the human voice. You may even have voicemails left over from years ago that you will never delete. I think of the videos from Siena and Wuhan in which people sing or call out, connecting from windows and balconies during social isolation across distance like the twilight bark in 101 Dalmatians. If you've fallen out of the habit or never had it to begin with, here's what to do. First, find the best equipment you can. Ideally, a real phone, a landline is optimal, or a cell phone with decent audio. Held right up to your ear. Avoid the diffuse, echoey sadness of the speakerphone the vulnerable voice bouncing around in an open room, or, God forbid, an open car. No screens. No juddering technology or buffering. No contending with the distracting horror of your own disembodied face. Just voice. Mind meeting soul meeting timbre. Don't have a TV on. Don't have a laptop in front of you. Sit in a favorite chair and look at your plants and your books. They're beautiful. Look out the window, the trees outside. Listen to your friend. As step by step, we move toward the realization of Bell's early dream. His dream of a day when anyone, anywhere, can talk clearly and at a moment's notice with anyone, anywhere else. Will the telephone ring in? And my baby's on the line. Okay, it's time to launch a brand new feature here on the Ghost Light Season with Pacific Theater actors doing what they do best, phoning it in. I'm afraid to even answer Cause I know what's on my Will she call me last night? So we'll just fire up that soul food answering machine and see what we've got here. Hi, 
Hi, uh, this is Soul Food Studios International. Sorry I can't take your call right now. Please leave your name and message after the beep. I'll call you back. Just uh, stepping into the shower for a couple minutes here. You have three messages. One new message. Message one. Hey, Ron, it's Gina Chirelli. I wanted to leave you a message and touch base. And, uh, well, it's been a couple of years since we did Bar Mitzvah Boy at Pacific Theater. And I heard that it got published, which is fantastic. No surprise. I have so many great memories of working with uh, Richard Newman and Ian Farthing. Wow. One of my favorite lines that I always remember, guaranteed to get a great laugh every performance was uh, when Joey says to Michael, eh, if they had pictures like this when I was in Hebrew school, I might have stuck around for my bar mitzvah. And she says, I can't talk to you about sex, Joey. It wouldn't be right. He says, too embarrassing? She says, you're not a man yet. <laughs> Such a brilliant punchline. It was always one of my favorite moments in the play. Uh a lighthearted moments in the play. And uh, one of the other things that was uh, so uh, humorous to me, at one of the talkbacks, which was uh, largely uh, audience from the Jewish community, they actually thought that I was Jewish and that Richard Newman was not Jewish, which is... <laughs> exactly the opposite. I'm not Jewish at all, and Richard is uh, from a Jewish background completely. Anyhow, I always thought that was uh, that was that was funny. And you know, there were so many themes in that play that were so human and and that remain relevant. In fact, I was just having a conversation with my neighbors last week, and we were talking about. They had seen the play, and we were discussing about the principle of tikkun olam and how creating, putting goodness, uh, kindness for the sake of creating a better world, um, the repair of the world, and, uh, you know, goodness for the sake of goodness, uh, and the principle that goodness makes the world better. And that even presently in this present moment where, um, you know, so many of us are struggling uh, in light of the uh, world's condition at this very moment, that this remains true and that we are all trying to find small ways to put goodness into the world for the betterment of our neighbors and our loved ones and how that really, in fact, really does make a difference. Thanks to Mark Laren Young for creating such magic. And uh, congratulations on the publishing of Bar Mitzvah Boy. I hope you're well. God bless. Hi, Ron. It's Mark Laren Young calling. So, big news that I wanted to let you know about is that the play has just been published. Okay, it's not quite in print yet because printers are all closed. But it will be in print as soon as printers are allowed to reopen. And it is being published by Playwrights Canada Press. And, you know, I sit here going, wow, just one year, just two years ago, I'm, I'm staring at the 
picture of Bar Mitzvah Boy, the poster on my wall, and thinking, I don't normally like watching my work in the theater. I'm normally really uncomfortable, and, you know, you can get me to opening night, and maybe, maybe, maybe I will see a show one more time. And I think I went to see the Pacific production maybe ten times, because I thought it was so magical. And one of my all-time favorite nights in the theater was a couple nights before closing, and the place was packed. I had some friends show up who couldn't get into the theater. I ended up watching from the booth, and there was this bizarre phenomenon happening. And I couldn't figure out why people were laughing before the jokes came. And I'm sitting there, turning to the woman who's running the tech, and we realized that about half the audience had seen the show at least once or twice before. So they were laughing at the setups, not at the punchlines. It honestly just blew my mind. It was such a thrill. So thanks again for giving this play the most wonderful launch any playwright could ask for. Looking forward to a day when I can hop the ferry, come back to Vancouver, and see one of your shows and say hi in person. Love to everyone at Pacific. Hi, Ron. It's Richard Newman calling. Um, just checking in to see how you're doing during this rather uncomfortable period. Um, I'm actually quite well myself. Uh, I'm <laughs> My daughter says, I've been self-isolating for the last five years, so I'm quite used to living alone and uh, and enjoy it. Uh, but I was thinking recently, because one has a lot of time to think these days, that it was just about two years ago now that we were doing Bar Mitzvah Boy. And what a joy that experience was. Um, <laughs> I'm remembering the monster log that three-page monster in the middle of it all that I had to learn. Uh, I, I enjoyed learning. What do you mean, had to learn? Uh, but it was so neat because you're playing this, you know, rather loud-mouthed bully, and about three-quarters of the way through the piece, you find out why he is the way he is. It's just it's such a lovely turnaround. Anyway, I was thinking about that and you and, and everybody, and I'm just um, wishing you all the best and hoping all is well. And, uh, you know, if you've got some time in the next little while... Give a shout. Let me know how you are. All right? My love to everybody there. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, Ron. Ian Farthing here. I'm just calling in to leave you a message with one of my favorite memories from Bar Mitzvah Boy, which I directed in 2018. One of the most precious moments in the play involved Gina's character, Rabbi Michael, in the synagogue at a moment where she is coming to terms with the grief of losing her daughter to cancer at a young age. In the synagogue, there is something called the Ner Tamid, which is a light that hangs above the ark, and it symbolizes the eternal presence of God, and therefore it's never extinguished. In this moment in the play, Rabbi Michael's grief is overwhelming her. She is trying to pray, and she can't pray anymore. She feels that God has abandoned her, and the pain is growing inside her to the point of rage, and she throws her Torah at the Nertamid 
and the eternal flame is extinguished, it shatters. What Gina brought to that moment was so full of raw emotion that it never failed to give me a punch in the gut or make me gasp. And quite often I was in tears after watching that moment all through rehearsals and even into the run. It is one of those moments in theatre that uh, will remain with me for the rest of my life. Here are Gina Shirelli and Richard Newman with some moments from Bar Mitzvah Boy by Mark Learin Young. When Rachel was old enough to ask questions, the first question she asked at shul was about this light, our eternal light. She loved the idea that every synagogue everywhere in the world has one. It, it wasn't the Torah that excited her, but the light above the ark that holds the Torah. She wanted to know, why does it burn forever? I told her it was because there was a lamp in the ancient temple that was always lit and that it was a symbol that God was always there and that God and our belief are eternal. For Rachel, it wasn't the symbolism that appealed to her. It was the light itself. It didn't matter that it was just an orange bulb. Every time we visited a shul, that was the first thing she wanted to see. She needed to know that the shul had a light, that it was on, that the light would always be there. She liked starting at the eternal flame, my favorite concept in Judaism, tikkun olam. You know it? Tikkun olam, repair of the world. Kindness for the sake of creating a better world. Since everybody takes yoga these days, whenever I talk about it in shul, somebody asks afterwards if it's like the Jewish equivalent of karma. Well, I tell them karma is more like the Hindi version of tikkun olam. Put good into the world, the world gets better. Karma comes with a warning label. Whatever you do will come back at you. That's a principle of Wicca, too. Tikkun Olam is doing good for the sake of goodness, based on the principle that goodness makes the world better. Rachel still believes with all her heart. Thank you all for coming. My Torah portion today is about Abraham, about faith, about something I've always thought was ridiculous. <laughs> Seriously, Abraham offers to kill his son for God? What kind of person does that? I thought Abraham was a lunatic, a zealot, a biblical Charlie Manson. I also thought all of this was literal. But then the rabbi taught me how to see his sacrifice as a metaphor. What could be more profound for anyone than losing a child? And what could be more powerful than losing a child and carrying on for your community, for your world, for the spirit of tikkun olam, for your child? When I started this journey, 
when I returned to this shul for the first time since I was my grandson's age. It was all for Benny. I, I thought it was all for Benny and for Sandy. Never imagined it would be for me or for Rabbi Levitt Sharon or for Rachel. She wanted this more than anything, to stand here, to celebrate being a Jew, being part of this community, because that's what this ceremony is about. It's not about becoming an adult. It's about becoming a member of a community with rights and responsibilities. When I started, I believed that I was better off without this place. But spending time here, I'm reminded of the power of community. And sometimes faith is all we have and all we need. Today, today as I look out at my daughter, at my grandson, I am a member of this community, our community led by this rabbi. Today, I am a man.
That's Brian Thiessen's song, Remembering, from his LP, Road to Home. Okay, the one thing I've missed more than anything being away from you good people for the last uh, week or so, being away from our spacious and luxurious soul food studios here in the uh, hills of Richmond, British Columbia with our fine view looking over the the valley below is the mailbag. Okay, let's... uh, Let's see what's accumulated here in our long time away from the studio. This looks like a good one. Dear Soul Food, Karen, Peter, Taylor, and I were having dinner the other night. This is our social isolation group. Somehow we got talking about jellied salads, yams with nuts, pecans, and marshmallows, and salads made with mandarin orange slices canned, coconut, mini marshmallows, pineapple. Who knew? Marshmallows are in the veggie food group. I think of these concoctions along with bean salads. Where's this salad bean? Noodle bakes and other mysterious casseroles that appeared on groaning plywood trestle tables. Make sure that the folding legs are fully extended and locked in church basements for potluck dinners. I thought of farm wives and housewives of the 1950s and perhaps even the 1920s when people's worlds were shifting, expanded by radio, television, and family members coming home from the wars having experienced different or or fancy foods in Europe and other places, coming back to some place outside of Winnipeg, central Alberta, Tickle Cove, or New Westminster, British Columbia, and being faced with limited fare at the kitchen table. Magazines and cookbooks helped expand the repertoire, as well as neatly lettered handwritten recipe cards that cooks would bring to church next Sunday if you asked, and if it was a recipe they were ready to share. One tradition in our family life, lore and food, goes back to that time, getting a mandarin orange in our Christmas stocking. That was a big deal because oranges had to be shipped by ship from, well, from somewhere. We called them Japanese oranges or Mandarin oranges. Anyhow, they came in these nifty wooden boxes that you could use in the garage later to put stuff in. But the point is, we didn't have those oranges all year round. We had to wait until they arrived in the stores in the winter, around Christmas time, and Mom would keep her stash of them and give them to Santa when the time came so he could put them in our stockings. Karen observed how food availability and supply and variety back then wasn't anything like what we enjoy today. There were root cellars, sure, but eventually modern housewives could rely on things like tinned fruit, peas, beans, or asparagus, and there was home preserving, canned food, which was preserved in jars, Peter astutely pointed out that it was odd that they put food in jars and called that canning. But I wonder if canning in tins was an early way of preserving before mason jars. I could tell you why they're called mason jars, but I digress. 
when social distancing lifts, I just might want to have a potluck dinner, a pot providence dinner, in which the people, our guests, would be encouraged to bring the weird and the wonderful, foods plucked deftly from the higher branches of their family trees, or made from time-honored recipes found in the depths of Grandma's recipe box. And when all the ruckus of greeting and hugging and renewing acquaintances settles down, and we're ready to eat the bounty that people have brought, perhaps somebody might lift hands heavenwards and say something along these lines. Well, sir, we've been getting along pretty good for a while now, and we're certainly much obliged. Remember, all we ask is to just go along and be happy in our own sort of way. Of course, we want to keep our health, but uh, as far as anything else is concerned, we'll leave it to you. Thank you. Oh, and Soul Food, if you're talking to Ron Reed, tell him that we are listening to the Ghost Light Podcasts and are finding the offerings there delicious. Thanks, Jim. Well, thanks, Jim. I got nothing to add to that. Gonna smile and say, I hope you're feeling better. And close with love the way you do. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. Next up is something new, never charted at all before this because I hadn't heard it yet. Scrounged it yesterday afternoon from what seems to have been a Starbucks over on Dunbar. It says C-I-T-R on it, so go figure. My latest fave, number 6388 with a bullet. A bit of a contrast for your late night listening pleasure. Thank you. 